The scripture for today's sermon comes from John 15, verses 12 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's word to us. Thank you so much, Ashley. Good morning. Good to be with you all. You're the brave ones. The flakes just started coming down out there. I just poked my head out. Here it comes. It's coming for us. Grab your trash can lid and slide down a hill. No one has any sleds, but we have cardboard. We have trash can lids. We make it work, right? We're scrappy people in Oklahoma. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, It's my honor to open God's word with you this morning. Would you pray for me? I'm going to pray for you guys, and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your word. Speak to us through your word. Lord, it's cold outside, but we pray that your spirit would warm our hearts. As it was said of those who met with Jesus, that their hearts were strangely warmed. Meet us in this text. Show us Jesus. We say with the psalmist, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Recently, an online article popped up that received a lot of attention. It was entitled, How Being Selective About the People You Keep Around is an Important Form of Self-Care. The author of the article recommends a disturbing habit of one of her friends, writing, something that's really resonated with me over the past couple years is what a friend told me she does to keep, quote unquote, toxic people out of her life. Every now and then she creates a list with two columns. People who invigorate me on the left, people who deplete me on the right. And she categorizes friends and coworkers, acquaintances, and even those she's newly met into one of those two sides and then cuts ties with anyone on the right. That might sound a bit harsh to some of you, but think about it. The author concludes, why waste your energy and time on people who don't add any value to your life? Sociologist Tara Isabella Burton in her book, Strange Rights, comments on this blog post and says, quote, in the implicit cosmic battleground of self-care culture, There isn't so much good and evil as there is good for me and bad for me. And I share this with you because here's a person with a perspective on the purpose of life and a story that she's telling herself in light of that about ultimate meaning and happiness. She's constructed a filter for herself to sort her priorities based on what she believes is her purpose in life and she's stewarding her time and her money, her attention, and her relationships accordingly. And I share that with you because as the people of Frontline Church, we too have a filter for sorting our priorities 
as well. It's our mission statement as a church. And I hope that you see as we work through these verses in John 15 that instead of being founded on our subjective feelings, our mission statement is drawn from by God's grace and anchored in God's word. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you should know that our primary commitment and orientation as a church is to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've just spent an entire year working through all of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, as well as the 11 chapters that begin the book of Genesis. Now we have the opportunity and the privilege for the next couple of weeks to turn our attention to our mission statement as a church. And for those of you who don't know it, here it is. Multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. Today I'm tasked with considering those first three words, multiplying gospel and communities. And the back half of that mission statement tells you what we're about. We're a particular people in a particular place called to love God, love people, and push back darkness. And the three words preceding describe how we do it. We multiply gospel communities. How do we carry out our mission through multiplication? And what are we seeking to multiply? Gospel communities. What's fascinating is this word multiplying is a Bible word. And it's almost always used in the New Testament to describe something God does. In scripture, God is the multiplier. And just because he calls us friends and he sweeps us up into the joy of multiplication with him doesn't mean it's up to us. Scripture repeatedly shows him working in and through us, and as we supply the dependence and the obedience, he brings the life and the power to make multiplication happen. The book of Acts is described by its author Luke as all that Jesus continued to do and teach after he ascended to his father through his people, the church. And look at these highlights running through the book of Acts, Acts 6. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Again, in Acts 9, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Lastly, Acts 12, backstory of this potent little phrase, a corrupt king named Herod had just arrested Peter for his faithful gospel proclamation, thrown him in prison, intending to execute him. An angel spectacularly springs Peter from prison. And then we see Herod inviting a crowd's divine worship while he's giving a speech. And so God strikes him dead on the spot. And so then Luke can say really dryly and concisely immediately after, unlike Herod, the word of God increased and multiplied. 2025 is going to mark our 20th year as a local church. And a lot has changed since that first gathering of 20 people in Josh and Nancy Curry's living room on Easter of 2005. By God's grace, one thing that hasn't changed is our mission as a church. And for those of you who are relatively new to this church, this Edmund congregation was planted in 2014. And that means that we're about to come up on our 10th anniversary as a congregation, which boggles my mind. Our Yukon congregation, our newest congregation, uh, due to our incredible church planning savvy, was planted in 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> and, and next, by God's grace, 
Perhaps we'll be able to plant a Middell congregation with the goal of serving military families in and around Tinker by God's grace, possibly in 2025. And we've sent some of our very best across oceans to plant churches in Mumbai, India, and we've sent them into places like rural Iowa to plant the first church in that community in 100 years. Gospel communities, multiplying gospel communities. But all this begs the question, what defines gospel community? What holds gospel community together? And what actually enables it to reproduce? I think Jesus has some answers for us here in John 15. We're going to see here in our passage that gospel communities are communities that are together under Jesus, first and foremost. We follow him in what he's spoken to us through his word. Secondly, they're because of Jesus. We gather because of our hope in his life and his death and his resurrection. We're not gathered here because of shared hobbies or stage of life or cultural commitments. Gospel communities are communities that are together with Jesus. We're actually being empowered for ministry and his mission by the Spirit. Finally, gospel communities are communities that are together for Jesus. We're seeking the good of our city where he's planted us. We're longing for more people to hear the good news and come into the family. So now we come to our passage, and in these verses, verses 12 through 17 of John 15, they drop us down right in the middle of the last meal Jesus would share with his disciples before his death. And in what's been commonly called the farewell discourse, we find Jesus patiently explaining to them the significance of him going away to the Father by way of the cross. And so these chapters are filled with all sorts of words of comfort spoken to their anxiety that they are, in their minds, losing Jesus. And yet, Jesus is trying to help them understand in ways they're not fully going to grasp until he rises from the dead, that rather than losing him, they're going to be gaining far more of his presence and power than they've ever dreamed possible through the gift of the Spirit. And that instead of their humble little, seemingly fragile gospel community being scattered and coming to an end, it's going to continue to steadily multiply through suffering and opposition for thousands of years until eventually it fills the whole earth as the Spirit makes them the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. And so that brings me to the first thing I want you to see in our text. We multiply gospel communities under Jesus. We multiply gospel communities under Jesus. Look at verses 12, 14, and 17 of our passage. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And you're my friends, verse 14, if you do what I command you. And verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus is saying, I hold functional authority in your lives. In other words, we don't just give Jesus lip service, but instead when push comes to shove and we disagree, Jesus wins. We multiply gospel communities under Jesus. But we increasingly live in a culture that's untethered love from that kind of divine authority, and we've ended up in all sorts of bizarre places. So in a New York Times article on the difficulty of making new friends in middle age that I can just never get out of my head, one woman is interviewed there, and she's excitedly sharing her ranking system for potential friends. 
Everybody she considers for friendship starts with 100 points. Failing to return a text in a timely manner could lose you 10 points. Canceling a get-together could lose you another 20 points. When somebody dips below a certain number, she just cuts them loose. What struck me was how eager she was to share this approach as though she'd cracked for the first time in human history the friendship code. Forget Plato and Aristotle and Jesus. You've really got to try my ranking system. (laughs) But Jesus says, verse 12, love one another. And let me tether that statement for you as I have loved you. Jesus says, I define love. And when you come under my wise authority, I'm going to teach you slowly over time what is true and good and beautiful. I hope you've noticed that our sign outside reads, a church for the city. As you walk through our doors, it reads, a church for the city. We've been sent into our city with the peace and the presence of Jesus. And sometimes that love melts people's hearts in all the places where they're stuck and hurting, and they come into the family. But sometimes when we love each other, as Jesus is commanding us in verse 17, we get met with resistance. We get met with resentment. We get met with suspicion. We get met with pushback, just like Jesus. If somebody hates Jesus, why would they love his people? So to come under Jesus is also to sometimes come under resistance to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in his very next breath in verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, you need to know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus reminds us that as we come under his authority and seek to love our city as he defines love, we don't love our city to be liked by our city. We don't tiptoe around our city. We love our city out of obedience to Jesus, and so Jesus warns us not to be surprised by opposition when it comes. He doesn't want us to ever confuse faithful proclamation with fickle popularity. As one of our pastors, Steve Curry, regularly reminds us, Jesus is calling us to play to an audience of one. But there's more. We don't just multiply gospel communities under Jesus. We also multiply gospel communities because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus says, here, I want you to hang this banner over all your multiplying gospel communities across the world and across the centuries until I come back for you, love one another as I have loved you. Multiplying gospel communities would be madness without this banner. Love one another. Okay, how and why and who says? What about my list of people who deplete me? as I have loved you. And these verses often remind people of the words of Tertullian, a church father who comes only 100 years after John's account of the life of Jesus. And notice what Tertullian says. It's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us how they're ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would sooner kill. Verse 12 names our obligation to love. 
verse 13 tethers and defines what level of love that is. It's the kind of love that goes way beyond early morning rides to the airport. The supreme form love could possibly take the kind of love, verse 13, that leads a person to lay his life down for his friends. Jesus is telling them in ways they don't fully understand that he's about to die in their place by denying himself for the sake of deeper joy because he knows there's no other way to secure their rescue, so he's gonna willingly drink the poison cup. And what's been described as the great exchange, in his death, Jesus intends to take all of their punishment and give them all of his privileges. This is the gospel, a word that was used in that day and age of a king's herald going throughout his kingdom proclaiming good news. Good news. Part of growing in self-awareness, which is what so many people in our day and age long to attain to, is to stop and consider the implications of the gospel. If this is what it took to rescue us, if this is how far God had to go to pull us back from the brink, if there wasn't a secondary or a tertiary solution to save us, what does it say about our condition? What does it say about who we are when we're alone in the dark? What does it say about the massive gap between our high ideals and the reality of our fallen humanity? Everybody could read Jesus' words in this passage and say, oh yeah, that's my definition of friendship. I'll, I'll ride with that. <laughs> but we're not such nice people. <laughs> Earlier in the same fourth quarter conversation, we see Peter stumbling his way through that gap between reality and aspiration. In verse 36 of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, hey, where I'm going, you can't follow me now but you will follow afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. I'll die for you. Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster's not gonna crow till you've denied me three times. I love you, Peter, but there's a gap between your high ideals and the reality of your fallen humanity. You're gonna fail your friends. You're gonna fall short of your ideals. If you haven't yet, live long enough and you will. And when that day comes, what's your plan? How are you gonna respond? How will you recover? C.S. Lewis famously put his finger on this in his book, Mere Christianity. He's a savvy student of human nature. And Lewis says, we're always confusing the call to follow Jesus with culturally accepted ideas of what it means to be a good person. Notice what he says. As long as we're thinking that way, one or the other of two results is likely to follow. One, either we give up trying to be good or else we become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, Lewis says, if you're really gonna try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, it's not gonna have enough left over to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self 
which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, is going to get angrier and angrier. And in the end, you'll either give up trying to be good or else become one of those people who, as they say, quote, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always wondering why the others do not notice it more and always making a martyr of yourself. Lewis says, and once you become that, you'll be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you'd remained frankly selfish. (laughs) So Peter thought he would die for Jesus. Jesus says, someday you will, Peter, but not unless I go first. The power for all our lesser sacrifices only comes from the power of his greater sacrifice. Jesus is constantly trying to get his followers to grasp this. This is why he says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 43, hey, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's how you'll be children of your father in heaven. Because what's he like? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The people you despise most in culture? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? The people you look down on because they don't worship the true God? Jesus is saying, tax collector love says, hey, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But that kind of natural affection isn't even going to make your neighbors pause. There's nothing supernatural about that. Jesus is building a case for multiplying the kind of radical gospel communities that arrest people's attention and that serve as the ultimate apologetic because they've lived long enough to know they've never seen anything like this before. They've tried to do this before and it's not humanly possible. (laughs) That's why he first throws down this theme in our passage earlier in the same conversation, chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Notice, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the ultimate apologetic. You can't fake this. It's uncounterfeitable. (laughs) I've got nothing life-altering to offer my neighbor outside of Jesus. My best moral performance in martyrdom is only setting them up for profound disappointment. Aiming to be a good person is a bankrupt aspiration. Listen, if, if I could obey Jesus' words in this passage on my own, if I could be a good person, he wouldn't have had to die. There's nothing polite or nice or churchy fake about gospel community. Back in a day before our time when poets were even more famous than sports stars, W.H. Auden found Jesus late in his life and career as an internationally renowned poet. And he famously wrote these words in one of his poems, stand, stand at the window until your tears scald and start. You shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. Jesus bled and died for all the times that we've hated our neighbor in our heart. 
So he's teaching us that we multiply gospel communities under him. We multiply gospel communities because of him. But also, good news, we multiply gospel communities with him. We multiply gospel communities with Jesus. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Jesus says, I've called you friends. And then notice the evidence he gives. Because all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. And they would have understood exactly what he was driving at. Because in setting up this contrast between first century Greco-Roman servants and friends, he's pulling on at least three things that would have been highly intuitive for his disciples. One, they lived in a highly hierarchical culture where people in charge were expected to give unilateral orders without explanation to those beneath them. Two, the old covenant people of God throughout the Old Testament kept being given glimpses and hints and echoes of God's redemptive plan, but never the full picture like Jesus is giving his followers now. And three, in doing that, he's doing exactly what he's describing here in verse 15. All that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you for three solid chapters now, stretching all the way back to John 13 and continuing into John 17. He's doing what he's describing. There's now a new way of relating to God that's about to be opened up through Jesus' death, which means they don't have to go to a physical temple anymore. They don't have to offer perpetual sacrifices in order to approach the presence of God. Jesus is saying, you don't understand. My leaving you doesn't mean my abandoning you. It's so that I can be with you more, so that I can be with you always, so that I can be with you anywhere and everywhere. My death, my resurrection is gonna enable me to pour out my spirit on you. You're not going to have to go to a temple because you're going to become the temple. You yourselves will be the place where God dwells. The spirit in the old covenant would fall in moments on particular people to accomplish particular tasks. But now the spirit will be poured out infinitely without reservation on all God's people, they'll all have this spirit. They'll all be able to carry on a personal conversation with the living God who will dwell in them and speak to them and send them and empower them and even give them the words to say in the moment. The Christian life, Jesus is saying, is the spirit-filled life. That's why it says earlier in John 14, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's gonna teach you all things. He's gonna bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So Jesus is signaling to them that he's unwinding all that was torn and broken in Eden where our first parents were sent into the world away from the presence of God because their sins separated them from his holiness. And now through Jesus laying down his life for his friends, we can be sent into the world with the presence of God. Would you like more of the spirit this morning? Jesus is saying, you already have him and you can have more of him whenever you want. All you have to do is ask. That brings me to the fourth and final reason we multiply gospel communities 
We not only multiply gospel communities with Jesus, we multiply gospel communities for Jesus. For Jesus. Jesus says his purpose for all his people is fruitful proclamation of this good news of what he's accomplished in his inbreaking kingdom that he's bringing. Verse 16, I chose you, plural, and I appointed you, plural, that y'all, to make it southern Greek, should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We multiply gospel communities for Jesus. Jesus is saying Christians are those who are both saved together and sent together. Bear fruit, abide. So our ears should immediately bounce back to what Jesus just finished saying a few sentences earlier. Otherwise, these verses, 12 through 17, if they're lifted out of context, might get reduced down to some kind of marching orders for making God's mission happen on our own, like some kind of lame spiritual Eagle Scout project. But what Jesus is saying here in verses 12 through 17 is a way of helping us picture with skin on what he just finished describing in really ethereal language in verses one through 11. Listen to what he says, verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Why? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything we're called to do for Jesus, we're called to do with Jesus. So his primary point in our passage is not that we've been given a bunch of homework to go and figure out on our own, but that we've been folded into our new home. And there's work to be done in this home, but it's joyful work alongside our father, laboring in his fields to bring others into the family of God. If we only read verses 12 through 17, it sounds like we're only doing things for Jesus. But verses one through 11 Remind us that everything we do for Jesus, we do with Jesus because we're attached to him. We're drawing life from him and we'll never be abandoned by him. So he's calling us back to that theme here in verse 16, reminding us the only way we carry out our mission is through a relationship of dependence as we stay attached to him. But then in the second half of verse 16, he explains how that mission of dependence actually works itself out in the real world in the middle of a really crappy Monday where you don't feel very spiritual at all. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And if we're not paying attention, it can sound like Jesus has just switched subjects from talking about abiding to talking about our need to pray. And I've never met anybody who's like, you know what I'm just killing it at as a Christian? Prayer. Sometimes I astonish myself by how good at praying I am. I've never met anybody who said that. <laughs> the minute we introduce the idea of prayer, say the word prayer, invariably people's Heads go down because we all feel like failures at prayer. And yet the funny thing is because we have the spirit, we're so much better at it than we realize. <laughs> and we want to do it so much more than we give ourselves credit for just because our minds wander. And it makes us feel unspiritual. But deep down, we want to pray because we have the spirit. Jesus is saying, Multiplying gospel communities 
is a relationship long before it's a mission. And it's a relationship of dependence. And the primary way we act out our dependence is through prayer. So just set aside for a minute, if you can, all the pious, ethereal, long-winded pictures that come to mind when we think about prayer and replace it with this picture instead. Before I left for work one morning this week, my seven-year-old son blocked my path in the hallway and he stretched his two arms straight up as high as they would go and he just started bouncing up and down silently. His universal body language saying, pick me up, dad. Wrap me up in your best bear hug, dad. Give me a really good goodbye, dad. <laughs> so replace all that weird pious imagery for just a minute with that picture of my seven-year-old son because that's actually a far more accurate and biblical picture of what Jesus is driving at here in verse 16. Prayer is saying help to God. Prayer is increasingly making the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 94, a reflex. Save me, I'm yours. Words that Martin Luther famously prayed over and over curled in a ball on the floor of his cell as he wrestled with his uneasy conscience because he hadn't yet grasped the gospel. And his spiritual director said, pray these words. If you could pray nothing else, pray, save me, I'm yours. Prayer is knowing that through Jesus, the Father receives your prayers with the same joy with which I receive my son's request to pick him up and bear hug him in the hall. So James 4 says, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask the Father, Jesus says. And most importantly, ask the Father in my name. Tell him I sent you. He's expecting to hear from you. Notice, I chose and appointed you to this mission. That you should go and bear fruit. That your fruit should abide. That whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you. Do you see the connection? Jesus is saying, this is my mission. Don't get overwhelmed. <laughs> the next thing nobody ever feels like they're killing it at. You know what I'm really good at? The mission of God. When it comes to evangelism, I may be the best. I may be the best at that of anyone I know. I don't know anyone who talks like that. Jesus says, don't be overwhelmed. This isn't your glory on the line, it's mine. <laughs> This isn't your name and reputation on the line. It's mine. It's not up to you. It's up to me through you. You ask, I answer. You bring the needs. I bring infinite supply. You bring weakness. I bring power. You bring dependence. I bring rescue. That's not whining. That's prayer. <laughs> it often helps me to think of Christian community a little bit like a fire that we just managed to start in the fireplace of a cold house. And people are starting to peel off layers and warm their hands by the fire and gathering around. And it's precisely at that moment that Jesus offers these words in our passage where, where we're meant to enjoy the warmth of the fire without guilt, but we can't forget about those standing outside in the cold. The warmth is to be shared. Room needs to be made by the fire. We multiply gospel communities for the sake of those standing outside in the cold. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you've been given the spirit, Paul warns you not to forget that it wasn't that long ago that you were standing outside in the cold. <laughs> Ephesians 2.12, remember 
that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in a cold world. So the burden of this text is that Jesus is calling us to make room by the fire so that others can be invited in. But but maybe you're here today and you're the one longing for the warmth of a fire. (laughs) You've been standing out in the cold for a long time and you're ready for a change. Bring your history. (laughs) Bring your doubts and questions. Bring your addictions. Bring your fears and insecurities. Bring your painful memories. Stick around. Watch the way we live. Ask us whatever you want. (laughs) Tell us what you really think. We won't be offended. We don't have anything to hide. You're welcome here. This is the mission of God. We've sent some of our very best leaders to places like Mumbai, India, and rural Iowa, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and the neighborhood across the highway. And in each of those circumstances, We laid hands on them and we blessed them. And I think particularly of Sujith and Cheryl before they went to Mumbai. And I think particularly of Tim and Patty before they went to Iowa. We wept together. Gospel goodbyes always come with tears. But they also come with sober joy out of the reality that it's worth it. Multiplying gospel communities, whether it's your community group or a church plant in Mumbai, is never a divorce. It's actually our deep participation in the hospitable love of God that sets the lonely in families by seeking them out and bringing them in by the fire. That's why we multiply gospel communities. We multiply gospel communities to make room. We multiply so that more people can sit with us someday at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus, we thank you for your mission that you folded us into. Thank you for giving us the Spirit Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.